really help take part of the ministry. Anybody who's got any kind of brain at all looking around us will see how that God is blessing us and how we're growing. We're having people saved. Uh, uh, the nursery looks like ants at a picnic over there with all the kids we've got. And I love that. That's great. I mean, God has given His people that are getting saved and bringing people into our church. And, <clears throat> you know, it's just the way it's supposed to be. I learned a long time ago that the best way to build a church is just to simply preach the Bible and let God, you know, bring the increase and just take it from there. And, uh, and then take the people that, you know, really uh, have an aptitude or really want to be used of God and then, you know, focus them as God grows them up spiritually to, uh, for them to be used. So we're excited about what the Lord is doing and a lot of things going on. And uh, I'm going to be talking to you about some of that. Uh, in just a few short weeks here. We're going to put it all together as we go into our fall. i got some exciting things that uh, uh, we want to talk about, and we're just looking forward to having a great time. But today, again, we enter into this little book here called uh, uh, Philemon. And the Philemon is a, is a great little book. The word Philemon means loving friendship. And I think that probably no other book in the Bible really focuses on uh, a specific aspect of leadership and, you know, men and women who really want to have a relationship with God that produces all the right things in their, in their life. You know, it's not commonly taught as one of the pastor epistles. You know, we opened up and we started talking about the pastor epistles and how that they really are written for men who were pastors at that time that Paul was dealing with. But yet, you know, um, I always saw this book as, as a great book for the pastor. I always saw it as a book that, you know, if somebody uh, had desired to be a pastor or was an elder in the church, that's somebody who helps the pastor, or someone who was just a, a deacon or a le leader. Uh, I always thought that this book was, was a great book in that aspect, and I always, in my mind, put it together with the other ones. I never really saw it. It's a small book. It's only got one chapter. It only has 25 verses. But you're going to find, uh, and I, I'm not sure why this is, but usually the books that only have one chapter and a few verses, you know, have so many principles and concepts in them that, uh, and this book is no different. I mean, this book, uh, again, it really shows you the underneath mindset of, of what we have to have as men and women who really try to serve the Lord. You know, the breakdown of the book is really simple. Uh, in verses 1 through verses 17, the story simply focuses on the adoption of a slave. Then in verses 18 through 25 to the end of the book, it focuses on the concept of the redemption of a slave. And you'll find that the storyline is, is pretty straightforward. But it's from this basic storyline that all of the Bible principles that we need to know really come into play here. And this is what makes the book really not only come alive, it makes the book exactly what we need to have. Now, it's called Philemon. Let me tell you about Philemon. Philemon is a saved man. Now, the Bible doesn't say exactly that he's a pastor. The indication is that he probably is. Whether he is or he isn't is beside the point. Verse 2 says that he has a church in his home. You remember now, back in these times when Paul and Christianity was beginning to uh, flourish and begin to start here, and Paul was going around building these churches and, and evangelizing and starting churches. They didn't have church buildings like you and I have today. Uh, they met in people's homes. 
and where today, you know, the concept of the New Testament local church really doesn't permit that. I don't think anybody have a house big enough that we could all meet in. You have to go to the place where you meet in a building someplace that is designated. Well, they didn't have that option back then. Of course, you know, the Roman Empire wasn't happy with Christianity or the church anyhow, and so uh, many times uh, they didn't even have homes. Many times they met in a field someplace, under a tree. Many times they didn't even have a tree. <laughs> many times they just met together wherever they could. But Philemon, whether he's a pastor or not, he has a church in his home. Now Philemon has a slave, a servant. And the name of this slave is Onesimus. And in the story here, Onesimus, his slave, has run away from his master, Philemon. And through circumstances, God being behind the scenes, and that's another great lesson in this chapter, in this book, is showing you how that in the ordinary circumstances of life, that many times we just take for granted, that are just the natural course of things, God is behind the scenes using the events in our lives for a purpose. Remember last week I talked to you about the ability to see more than just what is happening. I called it a multi-dimensional concept, being able to look at a circumstance in your life and see it for what God is trying to do through it, not just in what you're doing with it. Well, here's a classic example. Because Paul, who's in jail, he's down there and, uh, you know, Philemon, he run, or Onesimus, he runs away from Philemon. He's out there and he gets picked up by the police they throw him in jail, and he looks around, and his celly is a guy by the name of Paul. And Paul begins to talk to this boy. Paul begins to witness to him, and Onesimus gets saved. And then in the course of Onesimus telling Paul about the circumstances, Paul finds out that Onesimus is Philemon's slave, and Paul says, hey, I know that guy. We started a church in his house. He's a friend of mine. So what happens now, Paul writes this little letter, Philemon, explaining to Philemon how God's hand has been in this circumstance. How many times, ladies and gentlemen, if you're paying attention, will God orchestrate the events in your life for you to have the ability to tell somebody the story of Christ? The problem is, and we look at it today and we think, wow, it's really tough to get people saved. It's really hard to build a church. No, it's really not. God's Spirit is as fluent today as it was back in the book of Acts. What is hard is getting God's people to be in tune with the Holy Spirit of God to understand what God's trying to do. That's the key. Paul wins this kid to the Lord. Onesimus begins to lay out his story running away from Philemon. And Paul says, hey, hey, you ain't going to believe this. Me and him are buddies. I helped start a church in his house. So he writes this letter to Philemon explaining that God's hand behind the scene, this boy Onesimus has gotten saved. And he's coming back to receive him, and he tells him you're to receive him in the light of the fact that he's now a new brother in Christ. Now that's the storyline. And if you want to put a little paragraph someplace, which you should, uh, around that as we're talking about defining the books in the Bible. You can condense that, but that's the story you got. But out of that storyline come the great lessons that this book has for us that are very many and very powerful. This little book 
sets for us something that 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus hasn't done yet. We saw in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, we saw how that Paul dealt with personal accountability in the ministry. We saw the 12 charges that he gave to young Timothy. We saw last week the aspect of stewardship that he gave to young Timothy over all that God had given him. And we saw all the, how it affects in your life and my life. But now Philemon does something that the other two books doesn't do. And this is why I say it is so vital uh, a, a part of the pastoral epistles because Philemon shows you and I the mindset how we are to view the ministry. And remember now the ministry is people. Not only does it tell us how that we're to view the ministry, which is people, but it shows us how we're to view ourselves. And this is a great little book. Great little book. Let's pray and we'll ask God to bless. Father, we thank you today for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you do. And pray now, Father, that you'll just help us uh, put together all that needs to be said today. We thank you for those that you brought today. We thank you for uh, the families that have showed up today. And may we help them do a better job uh, in all that you've called them to do. May this church stand to be their support. May they rest in this church to know that we stand behind them in their job as parents, in their responsibility as husband and wives. And we are not here to dictate to them. We are here to lovingly show them what the Word of God says and help them identify with the great principles and put them into their own lives. And we'll just thank you and praise you today. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first great lesson in here, and, 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 and this is vital, you've got to see this. We're going to take this slow because I know that, uh, you know, you're not all, sometimes you, you can't hear everything I say or, or just because of how I say it and how fast I talk sometimes. Well, I'm going to slow down here because this thing I want you to know, the first great lesson that comes out of this book is the Bible's position on slavery. And you have got to see this. This is an incredible thing that it is the key to not only the book, but it's the key to your life and my life and our success as a child of God. Now, the first great lesson here, I'm going to say it again, is the Bible's position on slavery. And uh, it's, a, it's a great concept. Now, I want you to know that in this subject, I'm not going to get into the debate of the right or wrong or slavery. That's not my intent this morning. I'm not going to pick up the subject and run a flag up for it and, and preach against slavery or preach for slavery. That's not what I'm doing here. I want you to understand that. I'm not going to enter into the debate on the issue of slavery today, whether it's right or it's wrong. I'm not, I don't care about that. My position is very clear. And my position is as simple as it's always been as far as just taking the Bible's position. Now, here's what you've got. And you need to understand it. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3, here's what you got. God made, and this is my position. This is the Bible's position. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, God made man. We all know that. God made man, and when he made man, he made man totally free. He didn't have any bills to pay. He didn't have to go to work. He didn't have to pay income tax. He didn't have to go out and hunt for his food. God made a society and a situation where God put man in it and made him totally free and God provided everything that man needed and man's only thing that he had to do was hang out with God and be with God. 
He made man totally, absolutely free. No oppression, no governments, no society, no nothing. It was him and God. And at some point, man, not God, man chose to reject God. And when he chose to reject God, he chose to become a slave to his sin. He chose to become a, a slave to another master. When he was free in the garden under God, God was his master and God said to him, I'm going to give you all the freedom in the world. Yes, I am your master, I am your creator, and I'm going to give you all the freedom you want. But man, when he chose the devil over God, signed up to be a slave to the worst master taskmaster that the world has ever seen, the devil himself. So it was man, not God, that chose to give up his freedom and to become a slave. Now I want you to understand that. Because we're in the 20th century, 21st century today, and a lot of things are confusing, and you hear a lot of things said, a lot of things preached, a lot of things written. You hear a lot of people saying a lot of different things, and we've got to get back to that lowest common denominator in the Bible that helps you understand that man was once free and then man chose to become a slave and become a slave to sin. Now that's just as simple as I know how to say it. And at that point, when man became by his own choice to be a slave to the devil and the sin in this world, from that point on, planet Earth is under a terrible curse and all the inhabitants on the earth are under this curse. Now, here's what you got to understand. Slavery as war, as disease, cancer, leprosy, tuberculosis, heart attack, stroke, as sin, rape, murder, drunkenness, drugs, child pornography, all the rest, as every, every leader that has murdered millions of people, Castro, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, Saddam Hussein, wherever you want to go, and every dictator and fascist totalitarian government that has murdered and oppressed people down through history as tornadoes, as hurricanes, and now we're living in the 20th century. There aren't just hurricanes. Now we got hemicanes. Can't be discriminative. It used to be a kind of an unsaid thing that they named women hurricane for the obvious reason. Well, I mean, not a bad thing. I mean, I mean. And now, you know, in our society, that can't stand because we discriminate against a certain group of people, so now we got to call them Hurricane George, see? we got to have hemicanes, and that's how the thing breaks down. But all of these things, disease, sin, oppressive governments, tornadoes, hurricanes, wars, and slavery are part of that curse. God never intended it to be. God's plan was that it was going to run perfectly and beautifully without any kind of breakdown, and it was man who decided otherwise. So now you have man and men and society and government trying to eliminate. When anytime anybody tries to eliminate 
any of the above, including slavery, and does not deal with the real issue on the bottom level that it is man's choice of sin and slavery that makes us slave, Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3. You'll never get it right, you'll never see it right, and you will wind up in history making the biggest blunders and mistakes and making the most asinine statements that you will ever hear in life. Why? Because man does not understand that slavery didn't start with God. Slavery started with sinful man who once had his freedom and gave it up. And to take slavery separate from war, from disease, from tornadoes and all the thing else simply means you do not understand that. It is by design that God wanted us to be free. And it is by design that man chose to dump God and be free. And a proof of that is simply this. You and I, as human beings, have been dumping God ever since. We simply, when push comes to shove, God's the one that takes it and we're in the eye and we go on and do our own thing for the most part. Now, when you get to that point and you don't understand that, then that's what forms our reasoning thinking today. I mean, I heard a guy say not too long ago on a documentary, he said, you know, the Civil War, he said the Civil War was a war where America lost more people in one war than all the other wars in our country's history combined. And the reason for that is, is because both sides were Americans. And then he said this, he said, but that's what we had to do in our country to free the slaves. And I thought to myself when I said that, you know what? You didn't free anybody. You didn't free anybody with the Civil War. I heard a guy say, well, well Woodrow Wilson, at the end of World War I, they started the League of Nations, which became the United Nations. At the end of World War I, Woodrow Wilson stood up and addressed the whole United States, and he called World War I the war to end all wars. There have been 338 wars since he made that statement. You know why? Because, and the two biggest ones yet to come in the Bible haven't even hit yet. And the answer to all this is simply this. War as slavery is because of sin. And until you understand that and you deal with it, you have got to come to the place where you you realize you are not going to fix anything and then you get caught up on all the false issues. And this is what you've got to see in Philemon. We're going to go on here, but I'm taking my time, threading my way, because I want no misunderstandings about this. As a child of God, you and I know this. (laughs) Sometimes you just have to take take the world with a big spoonful of sugar. I mean, this place is a freight train on a downhill grade, man, and it's out of control. There is absolutely no sane explanation for anything that goes on today in this world, in this country, and in our society other than looking at it in the light of the Bible. You know, what it's a lot like, and if you've ever studied history, you know this is true. The Roman Empire had existed for almost 400 and some, almost 500 years. It had come to the place where after the Greeks were defeated in about 100 B.C., the Roman Empire came on a steady incline to the time that, probably about the time of Christ, it was at, uh, or maybe 100 years before, it was at the zenith of its power. It was the greatest military power. It was the greatest economic power. 
It literally ran the world. But by the time you get two or three hundred, four hundred years after Christ, the Roman Empire is eroding. I don't know how much you listen to talk radio or whatever that thing, and I don't. I listen to it only for the amusement of people trying to call in and make sense out of a world without any answers that they can't make any sense out of it. But a guy by the name of Michael Savage, he's on late at night, he wrote a book, and this book, the title of his book is, a, is such a, a true, his name of the book is simply called The Enemy Within. And he's talking about that what's wrong with our country is what's on the inside. See, for years and years and years we worried about being attacked from the outside. We worried about the communists, so we had a Cold War. Before that, we worried about the Japanese, so we had World War II in the Pacific. Before that, we worried about the Germans, so we had World War II over in Europe. After now, today, it's, it's terrorists coming out from the outside and destroying our country. Let me tell you something. I'm not saying that those weren't threats. And I'm not saying the terrorists didn't do a job on us in 9-11, and maybe will do a job on us, most probably will again. But what I'm saying is this, they're not the real enemy. The real enemy is us. We are just like the Roman Empire. We are eroding with inside. We are eroding from the inside to the place that, just like before their collapse, socially, morally, they were in such decline, in such disarray, that they absolutely collapsed on themselves. That's what you're seeing today. That's what you're seeing today. All of the, there is no one man in the world today whether he's a Democrat or a Republican, can fix the problems in America. They're too out of control. The gas is going to go higher and higher and higher. And we in America, who have thought now for a long time that we had it made in the shade, have come to the place where it might just not be as easy as we thought it was. Because we're going to come to the place where we're going to see everything escalate. That's going to force God's people into a more understanding concept of trusting God for everything. And there's going to be a lot of God's people when it comes down to having enough gas to go into church or go into the lake. Go into the church or go into the ball game. You're going to see just like it was in the early Christian centuries that you're going to see that the, where we had the Roman Empire that if you went to church you got killed. Weeded out the Christians that weren't serious, you're going to find today something as simple as a gallon of gas is going to weed out who has really got this thing down and understands it verse and the priorities versus just doing your own thing. America's in a mess. Nobody's going to fix it. We are reaping what we sowed. For years and years and years, we, we're trying to run a 21st century technology on 19th century refineries. Why? Because within our own country, we wouldn't let us drill oil anywhere because the environmentalist crowd, you know, we got oil, oil, oil up in Alaska and those places, but because we didn't want to get soot in the eyes of caribou, <laughs> we stopped it. And now today, here we are. Caribou are seeing fine. You're paying three and a half dollars a gallon before too long. That's where it breaks down. And it's all because of the fact that we don't want a refinery in our backyard. We don't want anything, but we want, we want everything. Crime? My goodness. Let me tell you something. We are killing people in this city. We are, if you just watched it, we are killing people in this city. 14-year-old boys are calling up to a restaurant, ordering food, and when a guy comes, killing him to get $30 so you can go to a dance. 
Now, there's something wrong with our society, and you know what? Nobody's going to fix it. There is too much wrong. We are, we are collapsing as I speak from the inside. The terrorists know that. They know that we are so weak on the inside. We are so disjointed that we talk about terrorism. We talk about stopping it. We are hand-searching 80-year-old ladies at the airport, strip-searching them, but yet our borders on the south are coming in like, they, like, 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 like ants at a picnic. Why? Because we got political intones. You see this thing? It's all breaking down. It's all absolutely collapsing on the inside. America, I am sorry to say this, but it is true. America has reached the reprobate mind stage of Romans chapter 1 in everything that we do. And, and everything you see around us reflects that. If there was ever a time for God's people to get closer to each other, get banded together in a church, to get around that book, to hold on to what's coming, because that's all you're going to have is each other. And we're in trouble. And I don't say that with dismay or, or despair. Hey, I'm ready, man. I'm looking forward to it. I think a lot of it's stupid. But in this country, it is an endless maze with no way out. Men have no answers to the problems that we have because the only answer is in the Bible, and we dumped that book a long time ago. Because of that, there's no personal accountability. Our personal responsibilities are gone. There's no reality in our society anymore. America truly is an insane asylum run by the inmates. You eat at McDonald's. You eat there every day. You don't discipline yourself and you eat Big Macs all day long, four or five times a day, and then your children come, become to the fact that they become obese or you become overweight, and what do you do? You sue McDonald's because of the fact that they sell food that will make you overweight. You go through the drive-thru. You buy a cup of coffee. It's hot. You drink it and burn your little lips, and then you turn around and sue McDonald's because you burned your lips on their hot coffee. Now, you tell me what's... And the only thing stupider in that is the judgments these people are getting by suing these companies. They want to sue gun manufacturers. You know why? Because if somebody goes out and shoots somebody with a gun, instead of putting him in jail or, uh, or executing him, no, no. We'll let him go and come back and sue the gun makers because that'll fix the problem. I'm telling you. It's a breakdown everywhere we go. And in our society, we have been turned upside down. And we have lost our reasoning when it comes to the Word of God. And now our society, as I said, our society is looking for everything, everything that now cannot be different. There can be no right, there can be no wrong. There can't be anything that pulls it all together and puts it in its proper place. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in every aspect. Every aspect. You know what? It's not going to stop there. There's coming a time very quickly when you're not going to have a Kansas City Chiefs. Because calling the Kansas City chief discriminates against Indians. So it'll be the Kansas City individuals. I don't know. There'll be no Cleveland Indians. There'll be no Cleveland Indians. It'll be the Cleveland people. There'll be no Washington Redskins. You see, those are discriminatory, discriminatory concepts that absolutely have lost its reasoning. It, 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 it's, it's all a breakdown. It's all a breakdown. And of course, I, I just saw it last, a couple weeks ago, August 8th, 
marked the 60th anniversary of us dropping the bomb on Hiroshima to end World War II. There are actually high schools in this city that were forming up debate groups whether or not President Truman was a war criminal because he dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's what they're teaching your kids. How to question, forget the fact that if we would have invaded Japan, the homeland of Japan, we would have given up one million American boys would have lost their lives in that assault. Forget that. You see, we've lost our touch with reality. We've lost our touch with realities. 50, 60 years ago, it was a fact that gays and lesbians and same-sex marriages were unheard of. Today, we've got to have Gay Pride Week. We've got to have Gay Day. And you know what? If you disagree with any of them and their lifestyle, then you are a racist. And the key in that is, if I disagree with a lifestyle that is sinful and I'm a racist, that means they're looking at themselves as a race. See that thing? That's where it goes. And I'm telling you, it's a mess. It won't be long, and it's already happening to some degree that Bible-believing, soul-winning churches will become racist because you say one religion is wrong and the Bible is right. And the moment you take that extreme position, you're going to be called a racist. It's only a matter of time. It's going that way because this world cannot stand right or wrong. This world wants everything and everybody to be right. Now, let's talk about the reason for this. It's very clear. You've all heard the expression, and it's a true saying, you know, what happens in the West Coast is just a matter, and, and California is nuts, we all know that. And if you're from California, no offense, but California is nuts. And the very fact you're not living anymore proves what I just said, so don't get mad at me. The saying is that what happens out there only a matter of time shows up here. When the weird clothes come in there, they show up here. When the earrings in the ears and the nose and the belly buttons and through your head, you know, comes in here, it shows up here. It's it just a matter, a matter of time. It's just a matter of time that what happens there comes here. Well, in history, that's true of the church. You see, God designed the body of Christ to be a preservant to the world. We're likened to salt. Salt is a preservant. God knew that the world was in a constant state of decay. Why? Because of the curse and man's choice to dump God and become a slave to sin. So when that took place, when that happened, God put the church. And the church was to act as a preservative. It was to act as a stopgap where with the Bible and the preaching and God's people intermingling and preaching against the thing and holding up truth and righteousness that it would stay off and preserve any society from totally eroding. And of course, you know how that went. Now, the proof of that is the fact of, of the Philadelphian church and the Laodicean church. Two churches in church history. You know that the Philadelphian runs from about 1600 to 1900, and then the Laodicean from there right up to the time that we're living in. You see the example of that when the world, the church, when the church, when the church held up the Word of God and preached it, the world saw revival like it had never seen before. When the world doesn't do it anymore, the one we're in now, you see how the world goes. In other words, what I'm saying is this. So goes the church, so goes the world. I don't know how else to say it. It's just as simple as that. 
The reason why we have groups today like the Anti-Defamation League, civil rights groups, the reason why we talk about being politically correct, the reason why we have human rights groups, the reason why in the Christian circles we have the moral majority, or the immoral majority, however you want to look at it, and the Christian coalition, the reason why we talk about affirmative action with affirmative action groups and have the C ACLU and the NAACP and all the liberal movement in this country is because it takes man's rights to a new level. And it brings it to a new level because the church period that we're in is called the Laodicea church period, which means rights and justices of the people. In other words, we're seeing in our country today exactly the attitude on a broader scale, in a more liberal scale, exactly where the church is at. The church today, Revelation chapter 3, is more concerned about their rights than they are the rights of Almighty God. And so goes the church, so goes the world. Now let me ask you a question. Now we're in a pondering mode now. This is not really a sermon or a preaching. I'm, I'm, I'm philosophically talking to you today. So let's look at this as a philosophy class. And let's philosophize together for just a moment. Let us ask ourselves some questions. I had a friend of mine one time that preached in an insane asylum. And he was a great preacher, and he always started his messages the same way because he wanted to invoke the thoughts of the people that were listening. Every time he preached, he would get up and he would come to the pulpit, he would lay out his material, he would look at the crowd. He would raise a finger and he would say this. Today, let us ask ourselves why we are here. And then he would proceed to philosophically go through and bring them to Christ. Well, the day we preached at the Stark County Insane Asylum, that's not what it was called, but I can't remember the name of it, it was his turn to preach. He had about, about the same number of people that's here. And I was standing over the side, and he come up there and he said, Today, let us ask ourselves why we are here. Guy jumped up in the back and said, Preacher, we're here because we ain't all there. <laughs> yeah, amen. <clears throat> amen. So let me, let me philosophically play with your mind for a minute. Did you ever, ever ask yourself this question? Why in Jesus' time, 33 A.D., in all that he had done, and all that he had preached, never one time preached against slavery? Now keep in mind that slavery at this time was rampant. In fact, the nation of Israel had been made slaves of Rome. Take it one step further. The whole world had been made slaves of Rome. Israel as a nation were now under the iron heel and they were slaves of Rome. Haven't you ever seen Ben-Hur? I mean, they're out there and they got Charit and Heston get thrown down there in that galley and they chain them to the thing. That's what the Roman Empire did. You're sitting down there rolling your little heart out and you got some big guy sitting over there with two things going. And then when they start coming after you, it's, and you got a row to that beat. Ramming speed! You know how that thing went? And then the other guy runs into the side and all the Romans get off and they say to the slaves, sorry, and you're chained to the deck and you drown. Terrible situation to be in, but that's what it was. How come in all that Jesus said and preached, and the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, records 
literally hundreds of times. How come the Lord Jesus never took up the cause of slavery? In everything that he said, how come he never took the position that and preached again, we should free the slave? And I'm not saying we should or we should. I'm saying, did you ever ask yourself that question? Think about it. I'll tell you something else. How come Paul, when he meets Onesimus, and he wins him to Christ, sends a letter back to his owner, his master, saying, receive this guy. He's going to be a better slave now than he was before. Is that what Jesse Jackson would have done? Is that what Martin Luther King would have done? Is that what Malcolm X would have done? Is that the decision the Supreme Court would hand down today after the ACLU and the civil rights groups and the human rights groups? I mean, why if, why if that is what it's all about, why didn't the greatest Christian that ever lived and the greatest founder of the Christian faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, when they were here, you've got example after example that faced with slavery, Faced with the issue of a man owning another man. And I'm not justifying one way or the other. I'm saying man got himself into that fix. God never intended it. You looked at God and you looked at the devil and you said, I'll see you, God. And you took this master. And when you got this one, you got shackles. You got this one, you got freedom. Now that's as simple the way it is. So when Paul meets Onesimus, wins him to Christ, he sends him back with a letter saying to his master, he's going to be a better slave than he was before. And that's exactly what it is. You don't see Jesus walking around saying, I have a dream, free and last, free and last, free and last. No. He knew that freedom came because a man trusted Christ as his own personal Savior because he understood what freedom is. Now, before we go any farther, before we go any farther, let me make my confession to you. And I want you to hear this very carefully. Please listen to me very carefully. I don't want any misunderstanding. I am a racist. One of the best times I ever had in my life. You know, sometimes God just puts you in these situations. I got a summons one time about five or six years ago in a lawsuit. This lawsuit was bringing about, bringing on a, by a woman against a church who claimed this church had stole $40,000 from her. They called me to be a material witness because they thought I had information that would help the woman. And I had the greatest time of my life. And I'll tell you what, I went in there, you know, and they're sit all down and the lawyers are all sit around there and, you know, and uh, now here's the deal. Here's what they do. The lawyer for the woman was trying to make the church out as terrible as they could be. And that's what lawyers do. They want a judgment, so they'll try to pick up every piece of dirt. They'll even manufacture dirt when it isn't there. And this guy was going after this church. And he was trying to get this church portrayed as a racist church. Now, what that had to do with them taking this gal's money, but you see, it ain't about that. It's what they want to assassinate your character and show you that you're so low life that certainly you'd steal the money because look at all the other things that are wrong with you, even when it isn't true. So they were working them over. And I'm sitting over here. And then they called me. Now this lawyer for the woman, he wants me to side with him. In fact, he already told me this before we went in there, that that's why they were calling me. And so they sent me in there, and, and boy, I get a battery of questions. And the church's lawyer talked. I was there for four and a half hours. And it was the funnest time. I mean, 
I didn't have to pay anything for admission to this. It was so fun. I got, it was one of those classic moments that God puts you in that you just never forget. And I'll never forget, I was sitting down there and this guy was saying, now, uh, this church, uh, uh, you have firsthand knowledge of this church. This church, uh, isn't that true that this church uh, put, uh, put certain kind of ethnic pictures on targets to shoot at? Then I'd say, no, that's not true. Is it not true that this church, and he didn't wait once you said it, is it not true? See, he's got a whole list. If it's not, if he can just get one, he ain't get what he's going to get, he didn't want. He said, is it true? And I love the way they walk. Is it true? In fact, I do it a lot too. Is it true? Say, like, this means something. Say, is it true? And he'd swing your leg. Is it true, Mr. Alexander? Is it true? And I'd shut up and I'd say, no, it's not. You know, and he, and he would die a whole list. And then he came to the, the, the question. And I was waiting. I knew it was coming. And I was waiting for it. He says, Mr. Alexander, let me ask you one last question. This is how he did. He walked. You got to get this. You're me, okay? You be me? Okay. Mr. Alexander, let me ask you one more question. Mr. Alexander, are you a racist? I said, yes, sir. Oh, he loved it. He said, aha! He said, Mr. Alexander, would you explain that statement to the people here? And I say, yes, sir. I said, I am a racist. I believe that the Jew is going to run the world someday. And I believe that your salvation and my salvation came from a Jew. And the Bible says there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ who was a Jew. And I don't believe in white power. I don't believe in black power. I believe in Jew power because Genesis chapter, tw- or Revelation 21, 22 says they are going to run the world someday. It was just that quiet. He looked at me. I looked at him. He said, dismissed. <laughs> you betcha I'm a racist. I believe that God's book and God is true and everybody else is a liar. You can, believe a, you can be a white supremacist and you can believe the black people are wrong and you can believe a black panther and believe the white people are wrong. You can be against the chiefs, the Indians, or whoever you want and it's just a bunch of little guys running around playing, having a little fun. I'll tell you what, let me tell you something. All that matters is, is God in that book and God chose His people and someday the whole world is going to be subservient to that Jew. And you better grasp that. It isn't about slavery here. It isn't about who's on top and who's on the bottom. It's about God made man and made him free. Man chose to be a slave to sin. He's been a slave to it ever since. And you know what? We don't like the fact that God is favoring that nation over us. See, I don't have to worry about it anymore because I'm, I'm not a Gentile anymore. The day I got saved, they become a Christian. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Those things don't bother me anymore. I'm not a Democrat nor I'm a Republican. I'm a Christian. Which one do you side with? I side with this one right here. That's the only one I side with. I realize that the Republican and Democrats are all crooked. It doesn't make any difference. It just doesn't make any difference. And when I read my Bible, I understand <coughs> that when Jesus, who was on this earth, never preached one sermon against slavery, Paul told a slave to go back to his master because they understood something that you and I, most part, don't understand. So we get caught up in this thing today about discrimination. God discriminates. He 
put one nation over everybody else on planet earth and gave them promises. He gave monetarily, spiritually, economically, financially, and governmentally that he never gave anybody else. And then he's going to take that nation and he's going to put them at the pinnacle of the universe. And everybody else is going to come and worship at their feet. Woo! You see, world don't like that. Now let's see how clear it becomes. And let's get the point here. When we quit burning cars, burning buildings, marching through the streets, let's see how clear it becomes we just open up a Bible. You know what? I don't know if you ever saw this or not. And just, you don't turn to it, just listen to me now. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, a guy by the name of Simon, Simon Serene, the Lord Jesus Christ is bearing, bearing the cross on the way to Calvary. And the Bible says that one Simon Serene is compelled to help him carry that cross. I don't know if you know it or not, but he's a black man. Cyrene is in Benghazi. Benghazi is in Africa. In Acts chapter 8, you find the story of Philip going out to the backside of the desert, winning a young Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. That is the first story in your Bible where you and I see and understand salvation in the New Testament entirety the way that it is. It's almost like God panned back the TV cameras and allowed us to look and see exactly how you and I was going to have to get saved with every component in it. And you know what? The first man that way is a black man. Boy, if you're a white supremacist, you have a tough time with that, don't you? I'll tell you something else. Now, with this one, you want to turn over to your Bible. Turn over to your Bible. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Verse 1. So we see Simon the Cyrenian. From Cyrene, Africa. Black man helps the Lord to Calvary. We see in Acts chapter 8. First man saved in the New Testament like you and me. Ethiopian eunuch. Black man. Now watch this. The church at Antioch. The model church. The hotbed of Bible Christianity. Watch this. Now there was in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simon, that was called Niger. There's your N-word. It's a Bible word. You know what it means? It means black. It's man that takes it and makes it a racial slur. It means you go down to Spain or you go down to a southern uh, uh, culture where they speak Spanish, that's Nigra. It means black. And look at Simon. That was called Niger and Lucius of Serene. There's the same Simon there that helped carry the cross to the Lord. Made an impact on him. Of course, maybe it would on you and me too. My point is this. When you go to Matthew chapter 27, you find Simon the Serene, a black man, helping Christ to Calvary. When you go to Acts 8, the first man saved in the Bible is a black man, Ethiopian eunuch. And when you come to Acts chapter 13, the hotbed of Bible Christianity in Antioch, there are black men within the church, and they're part of this key thing because of the concept that in this mindset that when you and I get saved, when you and I get saved, you need to realize that you are bought with a price. You and I need to understand that you were bought with a price. You're not your own, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. You and I don't have any rights. 
And the reason why Paul and Jesus don't crusade to end slavery and Paul sends his slave back is because the truth of one great truth that God's people have lost is that true freedom has nothing to do with you being a slave or not. True freedom has to do with you being free in Christ Jesus. Now, when you're free in Him, nothing else matters. That's why the Bible says, whatever state you're in there with, to be consent or content. That's where it's at. When you understand that, it doesn't matter how you find yourself. It just doesn't. There's no freedom outside of Christ. Oh, hey, I understand. I understand. We think we make men free when we take off the shackles from their hands and their feet. Let me tell you something. That's not freedom. When they lose that master, booze becomes their master. Or crack cocaine becomes their master. Or heroin. Or marijuana. Or whatever. Gambling. Pornography. It doesn't make any difference. We got into sin and slavery of sin because God made us free and we chose another route. And man giving man his freedom, when in fact man rejected God and put him under slavery of sin, you can't free anybody. Oh, I know the old battle hymn of the republic, you know, what a great song that is, you know. I'm not sure how much it is a hymn, but it's a good song. And it talks about there in one of those courses about Christ as he died to make men holy. Christ didn't die to make anybody holy. On his own, you got to trust him as your own personal savior. And it says, as he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. You can't free anybody by dying. Christ already died. And you've got to understand the concept here, the mindset. When you and I get saved, we're a bond slave. That's why the key places in the Bible where it has the impact of everything that goes on in Christianity, you find a servant of servants of the day, a black man who was looked at at that time as a servant and a servant of servants. God chose those men because of what they represent. They represent what you and I ought to be. We don't have any rights. When we got saved, Christ died on the cross. He bought us. He paid a price for us. This is why in Ephesians chapter 6, you find Paul when he writes there, what a great passage. He says, the servants, slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing may, uh, any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And then he says this, And ye master, you see, masters and servants, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of person with any of him. You know what he's saying? He said, if you find yourself being a servant, be a good servant. If you find yourself being a master, be a good master, because the bottom line is this, God's going to judge you for it one way or the other. And I'm telling you, I'm not here to debate the merits or the demise of slavery. I'm smarter than that. I know that all the debate means absolutely nothing because the very men that are against slavery are the very men that chose to become slaves when they rejected Christ. So what's your point? What's your point? But I'm going to tell you something. And God's people today, they have missed this. They have missed this concept. It's a lost concept that shows you the truth and the reality. Let me tell you something. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're yellow. I don't care if you're red, white, and blue. When you become a child of God, you are my brother in Christ. It is as simple as that. You're not black anymore. You're not white anymore. You're not red anymore. You're not chartreuse. You're not whatever color you are. 
You are in Christ, and now we are in the same family together. I would die for you. You should die for me. We labor together. We work together. There is no racial barrier ever needs to be in God's family. We're all been alienated from God. If anybody had a right to be racist against us, it is a white, perfect, holy, shining God with black, vile sinners like us. He bridged that gap, and you and I need to understand that my aspect of slavery is this. When I get saved, I'm a slave, and my whole goal in life is to free slaves. My goal in life, your goal in life, the goal of this church is to free the oppressed and to liberate the slaves of sin. And with them to Christ, that's why, and, and, and God's people can't get this, and this is part of what I talked about earlier, how extreme this thing has gone and how far and how it's broken down. But to illustrate my point, some of you know this and have heard this before, I'm going to tell you one story about this concept. And i got two more points and then I'm done. But the whole concept is this. Back in church history, around 1700 to 1760s, there was a group <coughs> called the Moravians, the Moravian Brethren. And they were severely persecuted. And he had no place to go. And a man in Germany by the name of Count Zindendorf had a large estate, owned thousands of acres. He allowed the Moravian brethren to settle on his property, giving them sanctuary. He was a saved man. They began from that point building a work of training men and women who before the Reformation ever started, before the great missionary movements ever started in England, excuse me, <coughs> not the Reformation, the great movements in England started, that these men were going <coughs> literally around the world. They started a, a training center there for world missions, and Zindendorf <coughs> and August Spandenberg, another German, <coughs> began to train these Moravian brethren, which formed in time into the Moravian missionary movement. They sent these men and women around the world, they're, they trained them in the philosophy that you go into a country, go into a city, and you get a job in that city, and you support yourself, and then you begin to build one at a time, men and women, winning them to Christ, bringing them together, and in time, you build a church. They were tent maker missionaries. <clears throat> they weren't supported by the church. The church didn't have any money. They were, they were trained to go out and get a nine-to-five job <clears throat> and use the money they made to support their own selves in missions. And they raised themselves up and they trained them. It was those same Moravian missionaries who understand what I'm talking about today about slavery and freedom. And maybe some of you can't grasp it. I don't know. Maybe some of you, you're just not far along yet. Maybe some of you, <clears throat> you don't want to grasp it. I don't know. But this illustrates my point clearly and you can refute me, but you can't refute history. The Moravian missionaries, many of them, who were free men, went into Jamaica, went into the Ivory Coast of Africa, and went into the, even the United States in Georgia. And they sold their freedom and went in as slaves with the black people that were coming over from Africa. And slave trading was a horrendous thing at this time. And these Moravian missionaries would go to Ivory Coast of Africa, down in Jamaica, down in Puerto Rico, and on the eastern seaboard there in Georgia. And they would come in there, and they would go up, and they would sell themselves 
as slaves. Why? Never to be free again. Never to be able to go to their own home when they wanted to. Never be able to go back to their mother's funeral. Never again to be able to go and celebrate with their friends. They sold themselves, their persons, into slavery that they might better reach as missionaries the black man that was in slavery. We can't even comprehend that today. And the reason why we can't is because we have lost the concept of Philemon. It didn't matter to the Moravian missionaries whether they sold themselves their freedom and went to be slaves to reach black men and women for Christ because they understood that being saved, they were free. And there was nothing on this planet, no shackles, no iron, no cell, no ship, no slave ship, nobody, nothing that could ever take that freedom from them. Because they understand that true freedom only exists in Christ and any other freedom is only an illusion and a figment of your imagination. True freedom comes in becoming God's child. And then it doesn't matter what you do. You know why? Because one is your master, that is Christ. Now, in our church, we need to grasp that. Because that is the concept That'll make it or break it in these last days. Now, I know it's tough and I know it's hard because we are always bombarded. Some of you are bombarded by your past lifestyles, by your circumstances, by financial things. I understand that. All I can say is this. Let me help you one step at a time. Let the men and women in this church help you one step at a time. But I'm telling you, you have, in the days that we're living in, if you and I don't band together in this little Bible-believing church and pull our families together and pull our wives and our husbands together, this thing is, like, is going to suck us under. It takes God's people understanding these principles that you and I don't have any rights. Then quickly, out of that great truth, and that is the single theme of that book, but there are a couple other things we have got to see. Look at Philemon chapter, chapter 1, verse 7. And we have great joy and cons consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee, that which is convenient. For yet, uh, yet for love's sake, I'd rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's in jail. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in, my, in time past was unto thee unprofitable, but now, now that he's saved, profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, send him back, thou there receive him, that is, my own bow. He says, receive him like you do me. Now this is what you see. And look, guys, I'm telling you right now, <clears throat> I see a lot of things you don't see. That's my job. And I see a great host of men and women in this church that have the potential to make an impact in these last days. I can't tell you how it fills my heart. Sometimes I can't hardly stand it. And I see within this group that God has given us in the last couple of years and the people that God keeps bringing in, men and women who have the ability in these last days to band together if we just get some things down. 
And one of the things you see out of this thing here, we've already talked about the mindset of understanding you're a slave. And now the next thing I see here is the fact that how Paul takes the personal accountability and responsibility for the boy he won to Christ. He stands up for him. He takes personal responsibility and personal accountability for the people that God has put in his life. He says, I beseech thee for my, own, my, for my son Onesimus. He wasn't his son but he was in Christ because Paul recognized the events. When God puts somebody in your life, when I, as the pastor, give you somebody to work with, you need to understand your personal accountability and responsibility of doing with what God has given you. It's as simple as that. And I'm telling you, it's one of those things where <clears throat> Paul stands behind him as he writes this letter to Philemon. In fact, so much Paul says, you know what? If this kid caused you any financial hurt, put it on my account. I'll pay it. That's how much I believe in him. He went beyond just the spiritual. He said, if this kid Onesimus, Philemon, if he's caused you any problem, if he's caused you any heartache, <clears throat> if he's cost you any money, put it on my account. Then look at verse 16 through 19. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother, beloved specially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in flesh and in the Lord? And if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or owed thee aught, here it comes, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand, and I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self beside. What a great thing there. Let me break it down for you. First thing I want you to see there, Paul says he's not your servant anymore, even though he still is, but he's your brother. That tells me right off the bat that there's no room for racism in the body of Christ. If you're truly saved and I'm truly saved, it doesn't matter. Jesus died for them all. And we're all together. We're all one. And it's one of those things where uh, just as a man gets saved and he's no longer a sinner, when a man gets saved, he's no longer whatever nationality is as far as the Bible's concerned. We're in Christ now. We're one. We're brothers. doesn't matter if he's black, yellow, red, and white. He's my brother simply because the blood of Christ washes us all the same color. That's clean. Then Paul reminds Philemon of verse 9. Here's what he says. Or verse 19. He says, I do say to thee how thou oughtest, thou owest unto me even thine own self beside. You know what he's saying? He says, hey, let me put it in the street talk for you. He's saying, now look, Philemon, I love you, but you owe me something. Because you know what? God put me in your life, and you didn't look too hot the first time I got my hands on you. You did a lot of stupid things. Remember the time you did that dumb thing and this dumb thing? And I didn't cast you off. I stayed with you. I walked through it with you. You know why? Because I was responsible for you and accountable for you, and I take my responsibilities, okay? You're his master. He's the slave. You know what? You need to do the same thing with him. Cut him some slack. And you know what, Onesimus, the bottom line is, or Philemon, the bottom line is, God has cussed both a lot of slack. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm a debtor. Paul lived his whole life trying to pay back a debt he never could. And that debt is simply the fact that God done it for him. And he appreciated it so much that he did it for others. And here he's telling Philemon, just what God has done for you, shown you grace, show this boy grace. And bring him back, not as a servant, but as a brother. And then lastly, and I think this is probably from a practical standpoint, the greatest concept and statement he makes. Look at verse 21. Having confidence in thy obedience. 
I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. You know, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 19 says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot that is out of joint. In other words, they're useless. You got a broken tooth, you can't eat. You got a broken foot, you can't walk. Can't get much done. You know, and training men and women to, in time, take over portions of this ministry. You know what? And I've said this over and over again. You got to know more than just the Bible. You got to know how to apply it. But more important than all that to me is, I have to have confidence in you. And I want you to listen to me very carefully with this. I have to have confidence in you that when I give you a ministry, or I give you somebody, I have to have confidence of you that you're going to do what's right with them. It's as simple as that. He says down through there, he says, he says, having confidence in thy obedience. He had confidence that he was going to not only do what was right, but Philemon was going to do more than Paul asked him to do. You know what? That's so true. You find some of God's people, and they're good folks. They are. But you'll find across Christianity or some, some of God's people that are good folks, but they just give the minimum, the minimum effort. They always just got more on their plate for themselves. And basically, if God gets anything, He gets what time's left over. It's a tragic thing. And they're good people. But you know what? That's just the way that it is. Then you got some of God's people who do what's right. They do what's required. But that's where it stops. They just do what they know they've got to do, and it never goes any farther. But the ones that really grasp the concept, like Philemon, and get the mindset, like Philemon, that they understand that your whole job is doing what's right, and when it comes to the things of God, not just giving 100%, giving 200%, going over and above what it takes to get the job done. You know what? I talked to you a couple of weeks ago. Not you guys, but the boys that are in the uh, softball thing on uh, Wednesday night. And I talked to you about seeing this thing as it really is. And I did talk to you guys last week. We talked about the, the concept of ministry and athletics and all that. But I watched this thing. And I didn't know how many of you saw it. I came out to the first game because I didn't have an appointment that night. And I came out to that game. I just watched what was going on. And you know what? Let me tell you something, boys. Whatever you, get, whatever you do, look more than what you got. Look around on the peripheral because that night, and God always does this, He drifted in from nowhere two people that were just there for the taking. Two people who were looking for, for answers. Two people who God just dropped in and if you're looking this thing more than one, you just see it. And you learn that that's the way God does things. He'll give you something to do. And then out in the peripheral someplace will be somebody that God just brings in that if you're paying attention and you just do a few right things, you can bring them right in. And I watched that night and I sat down there and I watched you guys playing and I thought to myself, this is an interesting problem because I wonder if anybody on here is going to see what they got right here, other than 10 guys, 11 guys playing a ball game. And you know what? You did. And I'm not even going to tell you about it. I'm just going to tell you, you did. Maybe you all didn't, but two or three of you, I don't know how many you did, but you did. 
Because I get my reports back, and I know now what some of you have done and responded. And I, you know what? I'm not even going to stand here and say you figured it all out. You know what? I know you didn't figure it all out. I know you didn't go out there and see. You know what it is? It's you being in touch with the Holy Spirit of God, God bringing those people in, and then God through His Spirit in you, without even you knowing the, the theological reasons behind it or the wherewithal, because you've not been in this that long yet, but being allowing God's Spirit to open up and do what you got to do, and that's how you do it. I'm pleased. Next week, I probably won't be, but today I'm pleased. I'm pleased. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. You know, I've been asked this question on Thursday nights many times. Somebody will ask me the question, you know what, why back there in Genesis did God choose Abraham? You know how many people were on planet Earth back in, oh, about 1912 B.C.? Why did God, out of all the people, reach down and pick one man to start the nation of Israel from? What was more special about him than everybody else that was down there? Now, the answer to that is found in, you don't have to turn to it, I'll read it to you. It's found in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. It simply says this, God talking about Abraham, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. You know what God is saying? He's saying the same thing that Paul's saying to Philemon. I got confidence in Abraham. He's going to do what's right with his children. There's his family and his household. There's being steward of all that God has given him. God saw in Abraham a man that would do what was right. Paul saw in Philemon a man that in this situation he had confidence that he would be obedient to what was right. That's all I look for. The path to leadership in this church is simple. And I need men and women to ride to that point with where we're going. In a couple of weeks, we're going to take, and I'm going to take a Sunday, and I'm going to lay out this fall concept for you where we're going. And it's going to take a lot of you to help pull this thing off. But it's what we got to do. But I'm always looking for men and women that I got the confidence in that in any given situation, I give you a ministry, I give you people to work with, whatever, that my confidence in you is simply this. I know you're going to do what the Bible says that's right with them. I have the confidence in you to do that. To me, it's never been about how much you know the Bible. I got people right now teaching other people the Bible that don't know one-fifth of what they're going to know in the Bible in 10 years from now. But you know what? That's not my point. My point is I have confidence in them that they'll do exactly what needs to be done with the information they have. That's all. That's what it's all about. That's what stewardship is. And in this great book, that's exactly what he has. It sets up a mindset. The mindset of the Moravian missionaries that you and I don't have any rights that we are simply bond slaves for God, prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ, He's our master. We don't have a right to argue with what he wants us to do. But within that bond-slave concept, he's made us a steward of his house. And we have to be faithful in that and obedient to do what's right in the aspect of ministry. Philemon's a great book, and it lays out all of the aspects and shows you God's concept on slavery. Slavery wasn't started by God. It was started by man. And why it got started by man, God's the only one that can end it. Man will never end it. 
man will spend the rest of his life taking the shackles off people's arms and legs and letting them go down and die and spend eternity in hell. You know why? Because real freedom is only in Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed.